Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is Leah Kaufman. And I'm John Murphy. Before we begin, I'd like to invite our listeners to tell us more about your interests. In order that we can bring you the interviews and information you'd like to hear, we hope you'll take a few minutes to complete the listener survey at our website, www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. All survey respondents will be entered into a drawing for a McGowan Institute Felice Vest. And now, on to today's podcast. We'll hear from two more people we met at the 2006 Regenerate World Congress back in April. Dr. Mala Padidam describes two technologies developed by the company he works for, RioGene. One is a molecular switch that turns genes on or off to guide the development of transplanted cells. The other helps genes home in on just the right section of DNA and could improve the safety and effectiveness of gene therapies. We'll also hear from attorney David Smith from the law firm Pepper Hamilton. Mr. Smith helps scientists move their research from the lab bench to the clinic by advising them how to negotiate legal issues in regulatory bodies, organize companies, and consider ethical and informed consent issues. He's also behind the ETG Venture Competition, which challenges graduate students to think of new ways to make commercial products of the technologies of regenerative medicine. Thanks, Leah. And let's now hear your interview with Dr. Padidam. Uh, my name is Malla Padidam. And who are you with? I am with uh, Riogene, a small biotech company uh, located in uh, Philadelphia, owned by University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Okay. And what does Riogene do? Uh, so Riogene is uh, developing two technologies, uh, already developed and in the process of taking it to the clinic uh, that, would, uh, that are essential for the applications in tissue engineering, uh, particularly to turn on and off a gene uh, whenever it is needed and also target the genes to safe locations into the, in the cells. Why is that important? So, in, um, for example, um, cartilage tissue, for example, currently people are making biomaterials or the cells or tissues that are transplanted into the knees. And uh, one can uh, use a bone morphogenic protein or other genes to differentiate the cells into the tissue that we want. But we, it's not good to have that differentiating gene all the time on. So using our technology, patient can take a small pill to turn on that gene for the necessary time to differentiate the tissue to where we want. Then they stop expressing that protein so that the, because the purpose has already been achieved. So I think that is an important for several applications where uh, turning on gene at a particular time is very important. And we have the technology. Just by taking a pill, you can turn on and off a gene. It sounds very science fiction-y, I have yeah. to say. So yeah. you, have a, you use a certain molecule that yes. goes into a pill form, and it somehow survives all that stomach acid, and it... Yes. It's how a, in the world? <laughs> so it's a small molecule, like uh, currently any pill, like Tylenol or anything mm-hmm. that you take. It's an oral availability, and then it go, gets into the blood, and it distributes all over the body, including the brain, too. Very few molecules cross the blood-brain barrier. So our technology can be used uh, to turn on the genes in brain. In fact, uh, Michael J. Fox Foundation mm-hmm. just funded as a $4.2 million grant to work on the Parkinson because a, a particular uh, protein called or hormone called GDNF, glial-derived neurotraphic factor, that uh, have went through the clinical trials by Amgen, 
but they observed that continuous injection of protein into the brain because you can't inject into the blood mm -hmm. because the protein won't cross the blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. So, but they found out that it has a side effect. So now Michael J. Fox Foundation asked us to use our technology because then we can keep the uh, patient can take a pill and turn on the GDNF only when needed because continuous supply of the protein is not good because uh, for the brain. So there is a side effect. So it's a good example of how regulating the gene in the body uh, has a direct therapeutic application, you know, which is a Parkinson's disease, for example. So the molecule, does it only act on that one gene that you want it to act on? How do you know it's not working on some other yeah, genes? Yes, so we have done... Uh, uh, because we are taking this molecule to the FDA uh, mm -hmm. this year, so we have done uh, exposed the different tissues to the molecule, with molecule or without molecule, and uh, uh, measured the gene expression changes in that. You know, all the human genes, 40,000 genes. So, wow. uh, and there is no difference between uh, cells. Means no difference in gene expression in the cells that are exposed to the um, this small molecule and not exposed. So we know that it has no effect on any other gene in human body other than the gene that we are trying to control. And is the, the gene that you're trying to control, is it custom made by you? Is it an engineered gene? Uh, no, the, the, the gene comes from a normal human gene. So what we have engineered is that a, this small molecule binds to a transcription factor which turns on the gene that uh, one is interested. So that means this technology can apply to regulate uh, expression of various genes. So you combine two things, the transcription factor and the gene of interest, and then this small molecule can uh, turn on and off the gene, whatever we put into the cell. So that's a, we call it a platform technology. It can be used for regulating any gene. So it doesn't have to be one particular gene. And I'm sorry if I sound really slow on this subject, but if you're turning on, say, the bone morphogenic protein that's gene in my new knee implant, mm -hmm. Aren't you also turning on the bone morphogenic protein gene all over my body? Uh, no, the, the, the bone morphogenic protein that is put into these uh, cells that go into the knee have a promoter sequence that is responsive to the small molecule. I so, see. whereas the native gene that is in the body, yes, but that promoter, promoter is a sequence that regulates the gene expression, you know, where depending on the tissue, time, uh, so every gene is regulated, as you know. So in this case, the trans gene that we are putting into the cells has a promoter sequence that only responds to the small molecule. So it will only affect that gene. So that's how we, uh, we regulate this. And it has no effect on other genes in the cell because the small molecule doesn't bind to that promoter. Very interesting. And you have another technology that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so um, currently in both gene therapy and cell therapy applications, um, uh, various academic you know, researchers as well as companies are in routinely introduced genes into cell for various reasons. One is the therapeutic application, other is just to understand how gene functions. So current technology is that we have no control over where the gene goes in. It's a random process. So humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes. It can integrate anywhere. We absolutely know. Whatever method currently used has no control over where the gene insert. So we have a uh, we uh, discovered or identified uh, some enzymes called site-specific recombinases that would allow us to go to only certain locations because they recognize certain sequence in the human genome and they insert 
uh, any gene. So it is a gene independent, means you could insert any gene because the, uh, these enzymes recognize a particular sequence in the, you know, attached to the gene and then they recognize a particular sequence in the human chromosome and they only integrate at that location. So we have a control over where the genes go in rather than random integration which has a safety concerns. As well as also uh, one other important thing in gene expression is that um, many studies have shown that the expression of a gene when we are putting into a cell or a chromosome depends on where it is integrated because sometimes it goes into one location, gene is off. Sometimes it goes into, uh, you know, because it's a random process, it has a misregulation. Mm -hmm. So, but, but knowing where it is going, having a control, not only satisfies the safety requirement, but also the expression requirements. Means we have a control over, you know, how much uh, precise control over the gene expression too. Could you describe a practical application of that technology? So practical application is, in fact, we, we are collaborating with uh, Children's Hospital at uh, uh, University here, um, where uh, type 2 diabetes. So type 2 diabetes is caused by um, you know, many different things, but one of the major uh, factors is a genetic. Mm -hmm. uh, the patients la have a mutation in a MHC, or major histocompatibility, too complex, you know, one gene defective that makes them pro, that makes the T cells go and attack the patient's own insulin producing cells. Type one diabetes. So type one diabetes. Yeah. yeah. I so get this in, confused in, yeah. a lot. <laughs> no, I, I, I confused you actually. So the uh, type one that means there is a way to correct. So if we take the patient's hematopoietic stem cells, which have a defective uh, MHC two gene, then we insert it. Uh, correct gene into that and put back into the patient. Same cells, same, you know, the taking a blood out of patient is very common. Isolating uh, hematopoietic stem cells, every uh, year 50,000 patients go through the bone marrow transplantation. So mm -hmm. it's a routinely used procedure. So what we want to do is that we want to use this technology to insert corrected copy or correct copy of that gene. Currently, FDA doesn't allow the available methods because they are not safe. Mm -hmm. And type 1 diabetes is not a really life-threatening. You know, it is a debilitating, mm -hmm. but it is. So uh, uh, this technology is a good example where we have a safety here, means a way of integrating the gene. We know the what gene is needed, but we want to integrate into safe locations in these cells, then put back into the patient, and then uh, to correct the type 1 diabetes. So currently we are doing uh, uh, experiments with the monkeys and uh, we hope to go into human uh, clinics very soon because the FDA is concerned about the safety and I think uh, they are not allowing any other currently available viral or non-viral method and we hear that if we show this as a proof of concept that FDA would adopt because it's a safe way mm -hmm. to get into the patients. Well, it would be very exciting to have yeah. a good treatment for type 1 diabetes. Yeah. Anything else you want to tell us about today? Yeah, today is um, you know, uh, about the conference. This is my co first Regenerate uh, conference. I think uh, um, I am, you know, the day went by very fast. Yeah. And uh, you know, if you look at the scientific schedule, parallel sessions, it's fully packed. So there is so much excitement. Yeah. And uh, another thing is that uh, most of the talks that and I could only attend few because there are parallel sessions, yeah. obviously. Are the, um, you know, that 
directly have an impact on patient. I think that is the exciting thing I see. Even though it is a, you know, uh, like academic kind of organization, like mm -hmm. in, but I see, I attended other academic uh, conferences here, I see, uh, you know, the impact on the patient. I think that's uh, one thing that uh, I didn't realize before coming here, but, you know, going through today's program and um, attending, talking to people, I think that's an excitement is that what is being discussed here, what is being uh, talked about here has an immediate impact in the near future to the uh, society and patients. So I, that, that's what excites me, actually. Good. So I'm enjoying my conference. Good. Well, yeah. we'll look for some more exciting news from your lab soon then. Sure. Okay. Thank Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Sure. And here's my interview with Mr. Smith. My name is David Smith. And what organization are you with? I'm with Pepper Hamilton, which is a law firm based in Philadelphia with an office here in Pittsburgh. And I'm going to start basic. Why should a scientist need a lawyer? <laughs> well, I can think of a lot of reasons, uh, but <laughs> I'll limit myself to those that pertain to uh, taking uh, research in the tissue engineering and regenerative medicine field uh, into clinical application. Uh, I work with a number of early stage companies um, that are uh, working very hard at commercializing these technologies and deal with the range of legal issues that they need to confront uh, in making that happen. Uh, from simply organizing the company to identifying the um, uh, FDA approval pathway for thinking about reimbursement issues, um, for thinking about issues around the use of human tissues in research and product development, uh, conflict of interest issues, uh, ethical issues, uh, informed consent issues, and so on and so forth. Is that the only model to get a product into the clinic, into clinical practice, is to form a company or to ally with a company and sell it somehow? Uh, it, it's the most it's the most robust way. Okay. Um, the the what the company really provides is uh, is focus um, and attention to the, to the specific practices and processes for bringing the product to market. You know anybody could do it, uh, but uh, it requires an organized effort um, and it requires reproducibility to have a product which the FDA is confident uh, is safe and effective to be used in humans. And, and the company is what really provides that kind of combination of financial resources, human resources, intellectual resources that can really make that happen. And how does, a, what does a scientist need to do? It sounds like there's two worlds colliding here, for, for one. You, you're taking somebody who may be a basic scientist or a preclinical um, researcher, and um, here they are in the business world. And I take it that you're the person who helps them to navigate this journey. Yeah, and, it's, and the, I think the important thing is to appreciate that it's not an either-or. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, it's not for the researcher to think, well, I've got one of two choices. I either am a researcher or I am in a company, um, an entrepreneur, trying to commercialize a technology. Um, what, and I, obviously, my work is primarily with the companies, but what I'm also interested in doing is helping the researchers have a better appreciation for that environment so that as they continue in their research careers, the work they are doing, to the extent that they want to see it actually used to improve human health, uh, is better oriented to that application. I'm wondering if that's a new model, too. It, there's a stereotype of the scientist laboring at the lab bench really focused on this sort of molecular level problem. Um, you know, maybe it turns into a treatment one day or not. Is, is, do you think it's a new notion for a scientist laboring at a lab bench to also be wondering, hey, am I going to get FDA approval for this, and can we go to animal models later? And I, I think that uh, it's, it's not so new anymore, mm -hmm. uh, um, mainly because I think that 
um, not only are researchers more interested in seeing that their research has uh, human impact, uh, but also the, the agencies which are funding that research are expecting researchers to pay more attention to uh, clinical utility, and that, that, that uh, it's not exclusively about creating new knowledge. Uh, it is also about um, improving the human condition. Uh, so that as the NIH is funding research, um, there is, I wouldn't say an overwhelming expectation, but certainly uh, a, a growing interest uh, that researchers are thinking more about uh, the commercialization issues. Not that they need to undertake and solve those issues themselves, but as they are planning their research and as they are thinking about what to research, that they are paying more attention to those issues. And tell me exactly what you do to help out early stage companies. Well, the first challenge is actually to create the company. Mm -hmm. um, and very often companies are created not just by a single researcher, but by a team of researchers um, or other individuals with relevant skill sets. And one of the first challenges is simply to get everybody to appreciate what it is they are doing uh, and how it is they plan to interact with each other within this company going forward. Uh, one of the big challenges among founders um, of companies, particularly people who haven't done it before, um, is to be able to look far enough down the road that what they are doing today in structuring the company and allocating um, ownership interests within the company and establishing expectations um, for themselves and for each other, uh, anticipate how those, um, you know, how the company and how the individuals themselves in their relation to the company uh, are likely to evolve over time. So they, it's, you may know where you're going, but you need a roadmap. Yeah, to get that, there that, in the sort that, of most that, efficient way possible. That's right. I mean, it's, you know, if you're lucky enough and you're Christopher Columbus and you set out, <laughs> you, you may find land on the other side, but yeah. you may not. And, yeah. and it is a little bit, um, uh, I think it does help the process if you have somebody who has actually been over there and can come back and then say, okay, here's how we're going to go. And, and there aren't any, any obvious answers in every situation, but there are a range of outcomes, um, and there are certainly a number of strategies for creating companies and for organizing the, the founders within the company and so on and so forth. Um, and it's important for, for the founders to have thought through those before they actually get going. Tell me about the ETG Venture competition that you put together. Um, that grew out of uh, something that uh, Dr. Kiki Hellman and I have been working on over the last... Um, three-plus years. Uh, uh, Kiki was uh, in the FDA in the Center for Devices when I first met her many years ago. And um, as, as we got to know each other and, and carried on our conversations, we both became much more uh, concerned about and focused on uh, exploring the challenges in commercialization in the tissue engineering regenerative medicine space. So uh, um, at the Regenerate Conference in 2004, we launched uh, a one-day workshop called the ETG Executive Forum. ETG stands for Engineering Tissue Growth, which was the original name of the Regenerate Conference. Um, and what we did in that uh, workshop was uh, look at each of these kind of commercialization challenges in a kind of a serial fashion. So somebody would talk about reimbursement, somebody would talk about FDA approval, somebody would talk about investing in clinical translation, and so on and so forth. We did that again at the Regenerate Conference um, in Atlanta last year, um, but it really came time to kind of evolve that idea. And, and I became particularly concerned that uh, it would be better to be able to present those commercialization issues in, in context 
uh, and to do that through the vehicle of a business plan competition where you would have teams of graduate students and preferably teams not just of MBA students but teams that would be comprised of you know somebody from the business school somebody from uh, the biology department or uh, biomechanical engineering department or depending upon whatever the technology might be but the, that kind of multidisciplinary team that would gather around a particular technology build the business plan and then come and defend that business plan in front of a panel of experts and in front of an audience and by that process help us all think better about what would be uh, new models and potentially viable models for taking these technologies out of the lab and into the marketplace. It could very well be the case that, that um, um, these students actually intend to create this company themselves, uh, that they have identified a technology they actually want to make the company. They want to be the entrepreneurs. They want to be the founders. So this does have to be a real technology. It, it's not made up out of for the sake of the competition. That's right. It's, you know, okay. it's not, it's, you know, it can't be sort of a... Um, um, yeah, you, exactly. I mean, it, it, there has to, it has to be that real. An now, elevator to the moon, you know. You know I was thinking, <laughs> actually, I was, I was reaching for the Jules Verne analogy there. Yeah. Um, but it, so it can't be that. It can't be something just made up for the sake of wouldn't it be neat. Um, but but um, the way the competition is organized, um, there are really two tracks. There's the track for teams that actually want to create a company. And um, the winner of that track receives not only a, you know, a cash prize, which could help um, some of that corporate activity, but also in-kind services, you know, lawyers helping on IP issues, things along those lines. Um, but also there's a track for people who aren't really interested in creating a company themselves, but appreciate the, the, and are intrigued by the particular challenges presented in commercializing t uh, technologies involving the use of viable human cells and tissues. Uh, and approach it more in, this, in the nature of a kind of a business development exercise or a thought experiment, if you will. Now, again, the technology needs to be real. They need to identify that this technology has been patented, so it at least has gone that far uh, in terms of, of uh, proving utility. Um, but they're not obliged to then create the company afterwards. Um, nevertheless, uh, it's, the, you know, it's the same kinds of questions that are going to be asked of them as of the people who are actually creating the company. Have you really thought about the market? Have you identified how, how many people really can be um, potential users of this technology? And if you haven't thought about that fundamentally, it's very hard to think about all the other issues associated with bringing the product to market. Okay. We're about out of time. Is there anything you want to add as we wrap up? Um, I only to say I think the field has now kind of turned a corner and, and is on the verge of really coming into its own. Uh, you see a lot of researchers who are now paying more attention to the commercialization challenges, um, now more sensitive to the expectations of the FDA and, and other regulatory uh, agencies. And so I'm very optimistic that um, over the next five years or so we're going to start to see uh, a true industry in the field of tissue engineering and regenerative medicine emerge, and I think with it a lot of the, the real promise in all of that research will begin to become realized. That'll be exciting. Thanks so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks, Leah. For more information about Dr. Padidam and Mr. Smith, please see the links on our website, regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We hope you'll join us for our next podcast to hear from two more researchers, Drs. Kevin Shakeshift and Nicholas Rhodes, that we met at the 2006 Regenerate meeting. 
Dr. Shakechef is developing scaffolds of the same material that makes up absorbable stitches, while Dr. Rhodes would like to do away with scaffolds altogether, instead prompting regeneration by harnessing the body's natural inflammatory response. That's podcast number 15, coming to you in mid-August. Thanks, Leah. And I'd like to remind our listeners, if you have ideas for future podcasts, or you'd just like to give us some feedback, please send us an email at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions. And let me remind you that we are not physicians and we cannot provide diagnoses or medical advice. But we do hope that you'll stay subscribed to the RSS feed of this podcast, sponsored by the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And we hope you'll join us again in a few weeks. 